Welcome to Narratives and Nightcaps, the book club podcast where we dive into the details of a novel, pair it with a fitting nightcap, and then leave a little review when all is said and done. I'm Bree. And I'm Megan. And this is our part two discussion, part two of four of The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. Yeah. I hope you're loving it as much as I love it. Um, I have thoroughly enjoyed it and I think I like breezed through part two already like very quickly because I just kind of put it down so I'm ready to get this one over with so I can move on to part three. <laughs> Let's do it. Okay and what was our beverage pairing for this book? Yes it is a 1940s French 75 um, so that's one ounce gin, one ounce simple syrup, the juice of a lemon, and four ounces of champagne. I, uh, however, went on a bender this past weekend, so I'm slow in my roll. <laughs> and instead doing a 99% cranberry juice with like a splash of champagne <laughs> in it. <laughs> that's okay. Um, I am doing a French 75, and it's delicious. So, yes. but yeah, you do. You do that. So your role. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I figured, I mean, as I already told you, I've got two other parts to this novel where I can jump back on the French 75 train. So today, mostly cranberry juice it is. (laughs) Yeah. Kudos to this podcast for actually like taking me out of my comfort zone with different drinks though. I mean, I'm really glad we've tried some ones that I probably wouldn't just make. Yeah. And now I've just added a few things to my rotation. I I am with you. Also, I made a French 75 for Kyle and he was like, oh, this is really good. He wanted more gin than champagne, but I like tasted it before I gave it to him. And I feel like it's still balanced really well and still tastes like really light and fresh. So it turns out you can add more gin. (laughs) Nice. It's such an easy drink to make but feels so elegant yes and especially yeah well and especially when you like garnish it with you know like some lemon wedge or like a lemon peel yes like it just looks it looks so nice in your champagne glass and yeah it's a champagne glasses yes yes correct well as we know I only own my stemless wine glasses so that's the only thing I drink out of they're staple Yes. All right. Well, let's get into the Nightingale. First, I'll go ahead and recap part one, um, which was chapters one through 11. Yes. Okay. It was chapters one through 11. A lot happened, so I'm probably not going to be able to get to all of it. But if you're not reading or didn't listen to part one, then that's on you. So, (laughs) The story started from the perspective of an unknown elderly woman in America. She was in Oregon and she, we know that she has connections to World War II that she actually feels a bit ashamed of and has hidden a lot of that for many years, but we don't know who she is, what those secrets are. And we do know that she kept documents from the war, including an identity card with the name Juliet Gervais on it. But her son named Julian, who's been taking care of her and is the one helping her move out of her house at that point, has never heard of that person. 
And then we jump to France in the late 1930s and early 1940s. This story centers around two sisters, Vianne Mariac and Isabelle Rosignol. And we're not French, so apologies for butchering any names. <laughs> um, the two sisters have very different takes on the war and are also pretty opposite just in terms of their personalities. Vienna is definitely focused on caring for her daughter, Sophie, during all of this after her husband, Antoine, was drafted as a soldier. So he's kind of been out of the picture picture after like chapter two or three yeah. even. Um, he left really quickly. She is definitely focused on staying safe, but then also from my perspective or reader's perspective, perspective seems like a bit naive about the reality of the situation. Like she's just um, kind of following blindly and hoping for the best. <laughs> right. And um, so, which I get, it's complicated. Like you're focused on your daughter's safety, but Isabel, her sister, her younger sister has a very different take on that. She is uh, sort of rebellious in nature. She's been expelled from multiple schools. She's quick to say what's on her mind. And when it comes to the war, she is ready to take a stand against Germany. She's really, um, almost doesn't seem to care like what trouble that gets her into. And sometimes it hasn't happened necessarily, but there would definitely be concerns that her actions or words could ultimately get other people in trouble. So that kind of puts the sisters um, at odds when they just have different priorities when it comes to the war. When the Germans arrive in Carivo, the town that uh, Vian lives in and Isabel is there after her father forces her to leave Paris and she has quite the journey to get there. She meets Gaëtan or Gaëtan and the <laughs> one of those sort of somewhere in between meets yeah. um, him quickly falls into what she describes as love with him, but she ends up in Caribou. The Germans arrive there as well. And a German soldier named Captain Beck moves into their house. He seems respectful enough. I don't really know how else to describe that. Um, but it's hard to know whether or not you can trust him. Isabel certainly doesn't. And we left off when he asked Vianne to help him with a list that he claimed was for work. And she was supposed to write down the names of all of her colleagues that were Jewish or communist and a whole list of other things. And she had to put down her best friend's name, Rachel, uh, after he said, oh, you forgot somebody. And so that was where we left off, is that she has handed over this list with names on it, including Rachel's. It's so, it's funny to listen to this summary because like from this, so much else has happened <laughs> after this point. I know. Like I kind of can't, I kind of forgot that that's how part one ended because I'm already like, we're oh. way past that now. <laughs> I know when I had to go, when I had to like actually think about summarizing that first part, it was actually kind of hard because I was like, wait, I mean, we're talking like years have now passed in, in yes. these chapters. So much has happened. So the second part of the book that we're covering today is chapters 12 through 20. So let's go ahead and get into that. So chapter 12. 
Vienna gets up on a very cold morning in November. She has to dress in just layer after layer to try to stay warm. The money that Antoine left them is running out and she's been pretty frugal with it. So she's been pretty conscious about like what they're spending their money on, saving that for the necessities, but it is, it's running out. And she definitely worries about how they're going to live on her teacher salary alone. So we remember she's a teacher at a school with Rachel. Isabel comes in shortly after surprised to see Vienna up. And sometimes I write Vienna and sometimes it I like must write Vienna. I don't know. <laughs> Why I'm Vienna. Vienna. <laughs> Both pretty. Okay. So uh, Vienna tells her that she might as well talk to her about the boy that she keeps sneaking out to see because Isabel's been sneaking out to distribute anti-German letters and brochures. And Vienna thinks that she's just sneaking out to see some boys. So she's like, come on, tell me who it is. You might as well. And Isabel's like, who would actually do that in this insane cold weather? But anyways, got to go. And she hurries off to get in line for their rations. When Sophie comes down for breakfast, she makes a comment about the Germans taking all of the food. So Sophie definitely picks up on little things that Isabel says mm-hmm. and and her personality and characteristics. And I think that that's kind of rubbing off on her a bit, which might concern Vian, but so she makes this comment and Beck overhears this and he says, you know, well, it's necessary for all of the fighting men, but then he gives Sophie a chocolate bar, which she scarfs down. It's, I feel like he's trying to like buy her over, you know, like it just, I mean, little things like that are just like little interactions that he's even had with Vienne and Isabel it's like he's trying to put himself of in this position of like hey we all just took over your entire town and livelihood but I'm not really that bad you know like I, I I'll give you chocolate and wine when you want it kind of yeah, thing he really confuses me but that specifically just feels so gross when he's like well it's you know so necessary for all the fighting men okay so but everyone else can just starve and die so yes. well and I also oh. think like it's funny hearing it from that perspective where like they are French so their own fighting men are out there starving right. and dying while the Germans fighting men are the ones taking over all of the food supply and all of the um you know gas and electric and like everything to keep them nice and cozy while literally everyone around them is dying <laughs> right and you're like oh this is for the the fighting men the fighting men who no one wants around no one asked the germans to come in and do all this yes yeah the fighting men for a war no one wanted (laughs) oh but okay um so then vian and sophie meet up with rachel to walk to school at this point we like we know nothing about the list that vian wrote for beck um but that's kind of hanging over her head uh rightfully so and of course though so at school Vienna is outside playing with the children when the police show up and the officers tell her that some of the teachers will be dismissed that day but she isn't one of them and so later that day Rachel is one of them and Vienna cannot stop thinking about having to watch Rachel be escorted 
out of the school. So she leaves and goes straight to Captain Beck. And because she has this weird relationship, I mean, it's conflicting for the reader too. And so I'm, I would imagine it's conflicting in that position. Like, she's like, I don't know if I should trust him. I don't know what he says is true. You know, I think he's been kind enough, but he's still German. And he also like had specifically told her that it was for like clerical purposes. So I think, I mean, she's obviously shocked that like, okay, I gave you the names of these people and now they don't have a job anymore. She's like, what Mm -hmm. kind of clerical work is that? (laughs) (laughs) Yep. But she like rushes off to confront him, which is a very Isabel thing to do too, I might add. And when she gets to his office, this part just rubbed me the wrong way. Mm -hmm. He has piles and piles of food just sitting in his office. And so she's quick to note that. And, but really she's there to confront him about the list. He claims he didn't know that that was going to happen. And then also says to her that it's really dangerous for her to be in his office. She clearly wasn't thinking about that when she went there, but realizes it when she walks out and other women see her coming from the Nazis building. Isabel is one of those women and rushes over to Vianne to scold her and really ask her what she was doing or even thinking by going there. Vianne asks Isabel to go to the school to get Sophie and Sarah while she takes care of something. And from there, she actually goes to the local chapel to pray or try to pray, but she's really just like racked with guilt. Um, She talks with the mother superior who is there and who who she has a relationship with, and she advises Vianne to stay strong because it's really just the beginning of the hardships that they expect they're going to face. She says, quote, ask for help when you need it and give help when you can, end quote. So then Vianne goes to Rachel's cottage next and ends up telling Rachel about the list. Rachel, at first, just kind of walks away and goes into her room. And ultimately she comes back out sort of trying to compose herself and tells Vianne that she is proud to be Jewish. Jewish, And she also tells Vianne that she really needs to be more careful with Beck and where he's concerned. Meanwhile, Isabel has been busy distributing flyers even though it's just brutally cold there. And in town, she sees a French policeman putting up a new poster that lists people that were shot for spying and that all French people arrested for acts against Germany will be shot. While she's out, she actually sees a bicycle nearby and decides that would be really useful on her uh, trips to distribute those brochures. And so she tries to, she like, sneaks over and then grabs it and races off to Henry's, Henri, I'm sure it's not Henry, but, and he says that she'll need to paint it so that the, because there was a German soldier that was using it and they definitely don't want him to know that she took it. So he says she's going to need to paint it and that he will paint it for her with the price of a kiss. She agrees to this, which I'm, this is like the second guy that negotiates with that. I, 
like why is that why is that the tactic of hey lady i'll do things for you if you kiss me like that's just kind of gross even in times like this (laughs) yeah i mean like neither one of them have seen bad but i don't really like that (laughs) no like i wish it was like hey if i do this for you you need to like distribute more posters or like try to steal some food like something like that versus like something more sexualized in a way yeah I guess it just shows like that all the men there specifically are just so physically attracted to her beauty like she's clearly stunning right and maybe it's to emphasize that I don't know either way I don't think it's a very fair um, term for negotiation but she agrees and then only feels incredibly sad afterwards. And Henri is, he notices this and comments that he can tell there is someone else. And really, I think this is the first time out loud she admits to anyone, even herself, that, quote, he didn't want me. And they sort of have this exchange of like, well, if times were better, I'd make you forget him. And she's like, well, if times were better, I would probably let you, but here we are. Right. Which I feel like, again, I can't tell if she was like also maybe low key attracted to Henry. Like, was there something? I I I, but I feel like he's described as like, not that great looking. And I don't know if it's just like, that's I mean, I think times. he was described as attractive. Oh, he was. Maybe it was the other person, people in the room. But I don't know. I just feel like desperate times call for desperate measures, I guess, in this case. And you just kind of make do with what you have. <laughs> I mean, although, so I thought he was described as attractive, but quite a bit older than her. Maybe that's what it is. Okay. Um, I could be wrong, too. But I agree. I think it is. And it's probably the first time not only has she like admitted rejection, but also like that's probably the first time it's ever really happened to her, too. Probably. It it doesn't seem like that's definitely something she normally has to deal with. And I think it just shows, too, how things are changing for her because it sounds like she would normally be like, yeah, I'll just get over that other guy. No big deal. But Right. There are bigger concerns to deal with. Chapter 13. It's now April 1941. And Vienna takes a note out to Isabel that was delivered by Henri, which is out of the norm because it's been very secretive that, you know, Isabel has a signal with them when she needs notes. And Henri has never just showed up at her house, which is also uh, not great because like, He's a communist and people really shouldn't see them together. Anywho, the note says it tells her that the curtains are open, which is her signal. So Vienna thinks that Henri may be the guy that Isabel has been sneaking out to see. And she sort of says like, Isabel, he's a communist. You know, you shouldn't be seeing him. Like times are not great to have a boy toy who's a communist. Right. (laughs) And Isabel's like, yeah, okay. And then hurries off to go see him. And And he tells her that they have an important note that needs to be delivered to a contact in Paris. But the rest of the group is being watched, so they can't do that. And also, they want her to stay there for more letters and deliveries. She agrees, but has to get in 
Ausbe, Ausbe. But I, I know. it's German. I don't um, speak German. That's I, like beyond. <laughs> look, my French is bad, but it's probably better than my German. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's basically like the pass that she needs to travel. So she can't travel unless she gets one of these. And they tell her that this is really the moment that like everything's going to change for her, but that was also a bit preemptive. And like, she's going to have to lie to everyone, continue to lie, lie to everyone. She's never going to be safe. And ultimately if anyone finds out what she's doing and gets caught, she will die. So back at Vianne's house, Captain Beck arrives with more German soldiers who are there to knock down the wall that goes in front of her house and also perform a requisition of her items inside. He says he couldn't stop it from happening because his superiors know that someone is handing out flyers and they think that by knocking down this wall, they're going to be able to see it more clearly and catch this person. Isabel has also come back and asks back for help getting a pass to travel because she says their father is sick, quotes, and he says, you know, yeah, happy to help since it's an emergency. <laughs> This obviously catches Vienne by surprise because she's like, what? Dad? Like, Dad, six? What? Six? <laughs> Since when? And Isabel tells her, hey, look, I lied because you were totally right. I'm like madly in love with Henri and I'm running away with him. Ta-da. Which like, I mean, I feel like if you're going to lie, might as well just play into that one since it's what people are most likely to believe about you anyway. That's and like true. everyone knows that Isabel is already this beautiful flirtatious woman so like of course she's gonna run away with a guy it doesn't matter if there's a war going on it's Isabel everyone knows it <laughs> I, I mean I say play into it do it play it up if that's what people think and that helps you cover what you're doing go for it amen heard that chapter 14 so we are now going back to 1995 in Oregon and this is our first time since the beginning of the book that we are getting another little snippet from the woman at the beginning of the story. She is arriving at a retirement and nursing home. Her son has set her up with a room, has like all of her favorite things. He kind of says, hey, like you could still go home with me, but she's pretty adamant that she wants to be on her own and doesn't want to be a burden to him. He also pulls out a stack of letters, bills, and some other things, but in that stack is a letter from Paris. It's an invitation in French, and he can only see, he can only read that it has something to do with World War II, and he assumes that it's for his dad. But they want the woman to a attend like a reunion um, that, and I think I misspelled it on here, but it's like or it might have autocorrected since my notes don't typically write things in French. But it's, <laughs> like, it's a word for someone who helped people in the war. And so she, the woman tells this to Julia and really thinks that she doesn't know how she could attend such a thing. Again, thinking to herself about, quote, the terrible things I have done, the secret I kept, the man I killed, and the one I should have, end quote. Whoa. So like yeah. from this Whoa. piece alone, like I just I feel like I'm connecting the dots that it's Isabel who is this older woman 
and just like just based on the last three chapters that we've gone through yeah. i'm i'm starting to feel like it's her but then all of a sudden when we're talking about like people that are have been killed and everything i'm like oh my gosh well maybe like vn just like went crazy on captain beck or something and killed him instead <laughs> but like the one i should have i'm right. like who okay who who'd you kill and who so you should have killed someone else instead it's just a very interesting thought it's, yeah definitely a big old cliffhanger big old cliffhanger and it's a super short chapter because then we kind of leave it at that and go into chapter 15. Woo. I don't know when we're going to hear from her again because the, it's really rare that we get these 1995 yes. perspectives. Okay chapter 15 it's May 1941. Vienna has stayed busy with chores since Isabel left for Paris. One day Captain Beck arrives at the house with fish that he caught that day and he says he caught it for yeah good on ya. He says he caught it for the three of them and wants to have dinner. I don't know like a little family and that's what I, I think that's what irks me the most about him is that he's almost like trying to assume Antoine's position because even like back in the first um part that we were right reading he was like oh I'll chop the firewood for you I'll like you know do all of these things for you as if he were her husband which is just creepy it's it's weird but then it's also like I don't know I do see that I it would be respectful too. Like it's also, I don't know. It's really conflicting for me. It is because it's it's one thing for him to be like, "Hey, I'm an able-bodied man. I can help you around the house." But it's another thing for him to be like, I don't know, because I feel like he's caught VN in like some more intimate settings where it's like just the two of them having a conversation with no one else around, and like that's what makes me feel like if he were more there just trying to be you know respectful like hey I'm sorry I just have to live here I feel like he would be more likely to keep things more public but the fact that he has had those very private seemingly more intimate moments in their conversation it just I feel like he just has this underlying I don't know some something bad's gonna happen I just feel motive yes yes I just have this feeling something's gonna happen (laughs) yeah it's I don't know. It makes me think though. So there's another World War II book that I've read too. And it it also makes me think though about like the German soldiers that truly were ignorant to what was going on. And I don't justify it by any means, but, and I don't, I don't know. There's some stuff with him that I'm like, how could you not know? Like, how could you I, I don't know how because he also know. seems like that? he's like higher command as well like he's a captain right he has an office he has all of these connections like the fact that he can just he got Isabel that pass he got um VN and the ladies like postcards to send to their husbands and stuff like I just feel like he has more connection and probably does know a lot more about what's going on than he's trying to let on especially yeah. the fact that like he knew Rachel was Jewish like and maybe that's maybe that's because she physically looks Jewish I don't know but like I just feel like the fact that he already kind of knew that I feel like he's got to be getting some intel from from someone for sure 
something's off. Yes. Something's off. But he caught them food, caught them a fish, and he comments that things have really changed since Isabel left. And he does assure her that the fish, like, wasn't taken from anyone else. It's pretty obvious that he knows there is, like, dishonor and shame that is associated with taking that or really accepting offers from Germans, even food, which just mm-hmm. sucks because, like, these people are starving. Yeah. Star- I, I cannot, I just cannot even imagine being in a position where you, like, if someone handed you that and you having to say no, but you're so hungry. Right. So she does accept it. The three of them have dinner together, but Vianne can't stop thinking about her sister's warning to stay away from him because that was what she said before she left. Um, so Isabel gets to Paris and the Paris that she had left has completely changed. She goes by her father's bookshop, which she finds shut down. So it's like locked up, not open anymore. And then she goes to his slash what was their apartment and he's not there for at first so she waits and thinks about how she'll tell him she should stay she's kind of prepping herself because she's gonna have to stand up to him yeah (laughs) and when he gets there I find it interesting like I read it a couple of times because he's not shocked to see her he just kind of like size yeah like god damn it you're here again (laughs) like did you why are you here but he's not like he's like treating her like this like stray cat that he just can't get rid of like every time I shoo you away you just come back (laughs) I don't even leave you food why are you here right (laughs) I don't even like you (laughs) it's just so it's so odd he's not mad but it so Anywho, she does stand up to him, though, and says, quote, you will not turn me away, end quote. He tells her that he closed the bookshop when the Nazis took over because they burned a lot of the books and also the music that he offered. And then they were going to limit what he could sell going forward. So they were telling him what he could and could not sell. But now he works for the German high command. Whatever that means. Whatever. Whoever that is. Yeah. And Isabel is, like, totally shocked by this, obviously can't believe that her dad would do that, especially after they destroyed his bookshop, after everything he went through in the First World War. Cannot believe this. She is also continuing to play up her story about, you know, meeting a boy, and her dad finally settles and says, hey, like, you can stay, but I've got some rules that you need to follow, including, you know, be home by curfew, get our rations, and also stay the heck out of my way, is basically what it says. She goes to her old room and remembers a, like, fort, quote, behind an armoire that she has. It's actually a really small storage space with dolls and a very important note for what is about to come. The next day, and I said, like, I think it's the next day because... (laughs) I don't really know. Sometimes it's really obvious. And then other days I'm like, is this the next morning? Is this four days later? Is this two months later? I don't really know. I mean, I guess because I kind of assumed like when she got to Paris, it was like that night. Yeah. That's how I interpreted it. So I'm I'm with you. I'm going to say it's the next day. (laughs) Uh, 
Isabel leaves, like she waits for her father to leave, and then she does, heading out to the meeting spot that she was told to be at. A woman approaches her and says the code question that she is expecting, and Isabel responds with their planned response. And in their brief meeting, which I'll note is at a cafe that specifically says no Jews allowed, the woman says, quote, we, meaning other people, want to meet Isabel. And so they schedule another meeting for the next day, but she's done it. She feels really accomplished. She delivered her first secret message in Paris. And I love that, like, she was specifically like, it was right under the German's nose. Like, everyone was sitting in the cafe and we just did it. It was two women. We just did it. (laughs) No one would ever suspect. No. Um, Also, back to her whole, like, secret fort thing. Um seems super cool especially because I feel like it was described that it was like a door built into the paneling on her wall so like it is very secretive but also like very creepy because it did still have like all of her old dolls like lined up along the ledges and stuff yeah I don't like that (laughs) no I don't either but I'm envisioning it as like because my old house used to have this where it's because our bedroom was up in the attic space so like along the slope of the roof, there was like doors for storage stuff. So that's, it put that visual in my head. <laughs> Very cool. No, it is. It's really, I don't know. It just seems so casual that it's there in this room. I'm like, did everyone have? Right. Did everyone have access? Right. Um, or like, is it only certain floors? Like depending on how right. high up you were? Because I'm sure it's part of the roof line so maybe are they like on the top floor of the apartment I don't know I just don't don't know okay chapter 16 Via okay this part really bothers me Via thinks about how life is easier without Isabel around which I can't so she that's like the initial thought in this chapter and then she's like but like we don't have any money left with I know like she then goes through all of these real problems that to me would be far more worry worrisome and instead she's like hey yeah you know life's easier without her around okay I feel like maybe more so because like Isabel being there was a physical just confronting with her every single day like having to engage in basically a borderline argument every single day I'm sure that that's that is why it's her first thought because like oh I don't have to wake up in the morning and argue with my sister today. <laughs> it's true. But I, I mean I do also hate the fact that like I feel deep down all Isabel wanted to do was keep Vien safe especially with her warnings about like not to be alone with Beck and like trying to get her to see the reality of what's happening around her. So it does make me a little sad that VN's like, oh, well, everything's easier, but she's still going around just as naive, but basically naive and starving now. Right. With no money and really cold. Yes. Um, Yeah. It, no, I'm sure. And like, I'm sure there was always that concern hanging over her head before of like, well, what's she going to say? Is she going to get us killed? Yeah. So yeah, that can make your life easier without that problem. But eh, I still, I just don't like it. I know. But she heads off to town with Sophie one afternoon for their rations. New signs are 
posted around and a lot of them show like Germans helping French children being these great people and saying, quote, no Jews allowed. When they get to the butcher, the owner of the shop is also no longer there and has been replaced by someone else who says, again, quote, no Jews allowed. They're like, where'd you go? And they're like, well, she's Jewish, so, so no more. Yeah, it's my store now, not, yeah. they don't own it anymore. That's it's, crazy. This sounds so simple saying it, but I just cannot believe this happened. I know. It's real. Well, I just cannot believe it. Yeah. And like, and I feel like that even stems all the way back to the beginning of the book where like Beck just took over their house. Like he literally has papers like, Hey, yeah, it's actually in my name now. So like your homes are going to the Germans, your shops are going to anybody except for their rightful owners who, because they happen to be Jewish. Like it is just, it's so, it's so mind boggling that this really happened. And I, you know what, probably it might still be happening today and we're just not as aware of it, which makes me really, really sad. And I feel like maybe I should actually watch the news sometime. <laughs> yeah. I think that it probably does on some level or at this, there are injustices all over the world still today. Yes. yes. Sophie notices all of this the signs. I mean, how could she not? And right. she like can't believe that Via isn't doing anything about it. Whether that's because of stuff like she picked up on Isabel. Either way, she's like, "Mom, what the heck are you doing? You're not doing anything." And when they get home, Via kind of yells back at her and questions, you know, "Well, what should I do?" Like they're literally killing people for the smallest of inf- infractions. Which true. Like I cannot be. I think as a mom, I mean, I know I've kind of been like hating on Via a little bit, but her number one priority is to keep Sophie safe. So I could see that where you, I don't necessarily agree with that, but I could see where you would want to like shelter her and just kind of fly under the radar. And because they will, I mean, you, one misstep and you could die. And then what's Sophie going to do? Right. And I feel like it's even, it's even more, and we'll get to it later on, but like VN, like you said, is just literally doing everything to keep Sophie alive, even if that means sacrificing herself, or maybe in this case, it's her sacrificing, maybe she does have some rebellion growing in her, but she can't do anything about it because she has to bury that down so that no one dies in her family. Yep. Captain Beck is also at the house and can immediately tell that Vian is upset when she gets inside, but he has a letter for her from Antoine. He, so Antoine's letter tells her that he's alive, he's being fed at the prisoner camp and is thinking of them, loves them. Did you ever, so I read that and I almost just had this like sneaking suspicion that it was some sort of forged, yes, like a fake letter that maybe Beck wrote or like he had someone else write because he probably already knows that her husband is dead or something. And he just, oh, let me just make you feel a little bit better about, you know, telling you your husband's alive. And he's probably not. I just, I I feel like he's. It did cross my mind. Yes. Oh. Especially because I feel like letters, I mean, and maybe later on, but I feel like weren't a lot of those letters probably read and like torn up or you know like you probably couldn't say too much or like things were redacted because they were being read by the Germans so they didn't want people to know where they were being sent from or where you know I just 
I don't know. I just feel like that was another thing that I was like, could could be fake because there's too much information available in it. <laughs> you guys kind of vaguely say like, like you can't send letters like this anymore. They mm-hmm. have to be on the, the specific German postcard. So true. Like, like I, I feel like he's almost kind of saying, hey, I did a lot to even get this to you because technically this is illegal. Right. So, but I don't know. But it was a part of me did think, this isn't real yes which sucks (laughs) yeah because I feel like in that moment when she received it that was like almost a high for her of like oh my gosh he's alive like I can keep going life is worth living it's gonna be okay (laughs) well and it is interesting because that's kind of what the letter says is like hey you need to be strong you gotta like keep pushing forward which I could also see Beck saying to her Oh, yeah. Okay. Back in Paris, Isabel heads to her meeting, and this time a man approaches her and gives her, again, this coded question. They have this exchange. He grabs her and leads her to another location. When they get inside, there are other men and women there, including one man that Isabel knows, for better or worse. (laughs) He is pretty quick to tell everyone of her history of being expelled from schools, her rebellious nature and her impulsiveness which is like probably not the qualities you look for in a spy yeah no you don't want someone impulsive who might fly off the handle at any moment (laughs) um but she has come highly recommended to help them and she thinks that Henri was probably the one that told them this Mm -hmm. and So they tell her she's going to need a new identity. And of course, no one can know who she is or what she's doing. And they give her a task when someone else knocks on the door, which would be so stressful every single time someone knocks because you don't know if you're about to be caught or if it's a friend. Like, you have no idea. But like, I mean, like, what would they have done? I feel like I wish that I knew what their like cover up was. To, you know, like if it was, because I feel like if it's a German, they're going to like knock once and barge in. Like, what do you pretend like you're doing in this dark, creepy little room? Like, how do you cover that up? I don't know. What would they I don't, I don't know if you're just like, it gigs up, like. Right. But I feel like that, you're going to give up that quickly? I don't know. I don't mean like you would tell them, but I don't know what their cover is to all be together. Right. Because I feel like it was the same situation even when she was back in Caravo. Like, what were what would they have done had someone given the wrong knock and they knew it was someone bad? Like, they weren't all going to just file out and run away. Right, and they're like, like one of you is a communist, one of you is, like, this crazy girl who speaks her mind, one of you is, I don't know. Like, they list yeah. out all the things. They're like, it's not a coincidence you're all here together. Yeah. Um, I don't think the Germans are going to be like, oh, what, what a fun party. What are you guys doing together? They're going to be like, oh, and you're dead. <laughs> and I don't think it's been said, but I wouldn't have been surprised now just thinking about it too. I wouldn't have been surprised if it was illegal to even have like large group gatherings like oh, that. Oh, I, I bet. Yeah. Like secretive, yeah. especially secret looking meetings like that. Yeah. I bet, I bet you couldn't have that many people getting, unless it was like church related or something you know yeah. well I'm like even thinking it's been a long time since I read it but it was another world war ii novel the Guernsey literary potato peel pie society I think the Guernsey literary and potato peel pie society is the book 
Okay. It's also on Netflix too, if you ever feel like watching it. Um, but I read the I read the book and that was like, I mean, it was sort of their cover for a meeting like that because they weren't supposed to be meeting. And if they get caught, they had, so that book does like it's their whole cover. Yeah. Um, That's what I mean. Like, it's not like they like brought, I don't know, like something with them to be like, oh, we were actually all just baking bread together you know like what was their cover gonna be (laughs) I don't know so but thankfully it's not anyone who's there to you know crash this uh gathering and a man walks in with a RAF pilot right we're just like saying okay um who's playing crash and they plan to hide him until they can figure out a way to get him out of France I'm assuming RAF is Royal Air Force. Yes. For the UK. Yes. So they do they do just call it like RAF, right? Yeah. RAF. Okay. RAF. <laughs> RAF. No, I think I th- I'm guessing it's RAF. I'm sure I feel like the British RAF. would be I feel like the British should be like, no, we want to keep our initials. We don't just say RAF. <laughs> Isabel says that to com- continue communicating with a group, she's going to reopen her father's bookshop. And they'll use this to kind of secretly be able to pass messages and talk to each other. Right away, she is tasked with delivering secret passages across France and then also rushing to open up the bookshop, which does not make her father super happy. Um, But he kind of settles with it and just tells her to stay out of the storeroom in the back. Chapter 17. It's June of 1941. Vian is at the school one day when the Gestapo arrives to arrest a teacher, quote, accused of something. So, like, not even a valid, legitimate reason. Just an accusation. They're just, and eventually they do, but they're just like, oh, he's accused of something. It's such BS. Vian actually intervenes, which is unusual for her. And... Uh, but probably a mistake in this instance, because then she's asked if she has been helping the man distribute anti-German flyers. She says no, but is fired on the spot. And so she goes back home and is just at a complete loss for what to do. Like they already didn't have any money left that Antoine had saved for them. And now she doesn't even have her teacher salary. Like she does not know what to do. Captain Beck, of course, is there to offer her wine that evening, which, like, I'm so glad that he just has wine to bring home to her. Okay, like, that's going to solve all of her problems right. today. Sure. Like, hey, and, oh, you're starving and have no money, but here's a glass of alcohol to make you feel better. <laughs> yeah, but I brought you wine. And he tells her that he's going to be returning to his home for a few weeks because he hasn't been there in, like, two years or something. She tells him how she was terminated at the school and worries about how they're going to get through the winter. Also, she's kind of like not accepting the wine and it does seem like he like forces her to take it. Yeah, like he literally like wraps her hand around the stem of the glass. It's, mm. (laughs) and in this moment, he also tells her that she's beautiful, which- hey, dude, you're about to go home and see your wife. Maybe don't explain someone else's wife stuff. So (laughs) Exactly. He's like, oh, I'm going to go home. I haven't seen my wife in two years. But by the way, you're really pretty. Yeah. Uh, 
Mm-hmm. So she jumps up and is like, hey, you really shouldn't be saying something like that. And it's just this really awkward exchange. And he kind of ends it that like, hey, I assure you, Sophie's not going to go hungry this winter, which I also thought was weird that he didn't say you like you guys, you and Sophie. He just says like Sophie won't go hungry. I'm kind of like, what does that mean? I know. And I also, yeah, like the fact that he's like, I won't let you go hungry. He's just like, yeah, just Sophie. She'll be fine. (laughs) It's weird. It's really weird. Back in Paris, Isabel has opened the bookshop and just flirts with the German soldiers that stop by. And again, right under their noses, she has a meeting with Anouk. That's what I've been saying, Anouk. Anouk, who is part of her secret group. And they pass signals about like her new assignments and everything like that. She has also been handling and given her new identity, which is Juliet Gervais. So now we know who that is. Yes. On her walk one night, always kind of looking over her shoulder, feeling like someone's watching her, which I think you would feel that in that position no matter what. Yeah. But this night she finds a RAF pilot hiding, like trying to sneak around. And so she makes a plan with him to get him back to the apartment. His name is Torrance McLeish. And (laughs) I love that I need like some sort of confirmation, right? Like every insurance from someone who also doesn't know their names. (laughs) That's okay. And so they make this plan to get McLeish back to the apartment and then hide him in the storage room behind her armoire. Shocker. When her father gets there, he's really quick to jump to the conclusion that someone is in the apartment and begins searching all around. He doesn't find anything, and Isabel kind of brushes it off. He responds to her that she really should be more afraid, and she asks if she should be afraid of him or the Nazis, and he says, quote, everyone. Honestly, as creepy of an interaction as that is to have with your father, it's probably very good advice given the circumstances. And especially if he really is working for this like German high command, I'm sure he's probably picked up on information that maybe not everyone else is privy to. So, and as it's going to be mentioned in like the next couple of chapters, there are a lot of people that will tell the Germans things to, get ahead with them or get food or anything like that. So you certainly can't be very trusting in the environment. Agreed. Chapter 18. Isabel waits for her father to leave before letting McLeish out of the storage closet the next day. And she told him the night before that they would go see her friends for help. So she gives him some of her father's clothes and they head out to walk to the group, which they do like, He's behind her and they don't make any eye contact and he just kind of follows along and, you know, they sort of have the agreement, like if one person gets stopped or more likely him, she's just going to keep walking. What I thought was most interesting about this, and I, I don't know if you picked up on it too, but like specifically they call out him having to like cut his boots down. Yeah. And I didn't know, like, is that because like fighter pilot boots are like so much higher that that's a dead giveaway or... I guess I'm not familiar with what like an RAF pilot jumpsuit looked like, 
But I just thought it was really interesting that like he had to cut down his because like don't you think it'd be obvious if they're already looking at your shoes, aren't they going <laughs> to notice that you, you cut down your boots? Yeah, I can't imagine that he did a great job doing that. Yeah, I assume that it meant that it, it they were just really distinct, and so they were mm-hmm. trying to make them less apparent. I'm gonna but, I'm gonna Google it. <laughs> do it. Tell us. And while you do that, I'll say that they walk to the group and they, you know, the group is talking about like how they do, they want to figure out a way to get all of these pilots that are crashing in France out, which is crazy to me, like the number of people that are crashing and surviving, but okay. And so, but that's awesome. They want to get them out and back to their countries, but they haven't determined a safe way yet. Did you find them? Yeah. um, They are very distinct, like super tall very thick let me look i'll see if i can i might be able to send you a picture like in the chat at me copy image like yeah i guess you'd probably want to cut those down <laughs> oh those are yeah okay yeah. if you cut them down to just the like shoe part yeah i wonder then... if that's what it is like cut off the the higher fabric because they're clearly like two different materials those are unique yeah <laughs> in the least okay makes more sense yes <laughs> so the group talks about how it may be possible to get the pilots into spain if they cut over the pyrenees mountains but of course like that's not an easy track and it's a border that's guarded by not only germans but also spanish patrols so um, and I think, I can't remember if it was here, but I know it's somewhere. Someone even makes a comment, like, you don't want to escape the Germans just to end up in a Spanish prison. Right, exactly. Okay. So they also mentioned that it was even tried once before, and then they didn't hear from the people again that attempted to do it. Isabel says, though, that she'll do it and has a friend who has crossed the mountains before, or her family has a friend, I should say. In a nearby room, this is crazy. Isabel can hear that other people are in there and Anuk eventually signals them and in steps Gaetan. He's back. He's back. (laughs) And he'd known all along that she was there. Um, So that's gotta hurt. Yeah. The others tell Guy of Isabel's plans and they decide to move forward with really working on the details of how they're going to make it happen. It's pretty late when Isabel leaves and Gaetan follows her. He tells her that he was really the one that set it all in motion. Like, not Henri. He was the one who actually recommended her to Henri and the others before she moved to Paris. He also apologizes for hurting her and says he really shouldn't have come out that day because it's better to not have to see her. She asks him why he left her back in Caribou. And he says, quote, I wanted to forget you, end quote. Gosh, she is just getting beat up on all sides by this guy. (laughs) Rough. Like, yeah, dude, you were better off probably not showing yourself because that's not a cool conversation. No. When she gets back to the apartment that she shares with her father, he is angry and knows that someone was in the hidden closet. And again, she plays it off like it was just a boy, but he says he knows that it was a pilot and he knows who she took that pilot to today. 
he actually knows all about the little network that she's involved with because he's the one that creates the forged identities, including hers as Juliet Gervais. He's really good. He is he, so good. Like oh, this whole time playing this spiteful man and turns out he's like all up in the rebellion land too. <laughs> yeah. And so he would know and he tells her that her life is going to completely change, which I feel like this is the second or third time that someone said that to her. But moving forward, like she will have to completely assume her new identity in literally every aspect of her life. I feel like this part definitely gave me goosebumps. I mean, the fact that her dad has been in it all along, I kind of cheered for him. Like, I know he sucked as a dad. And I know that, like, obviously there's been some ill will between him and Isabel, him and Vienne. But the fact that, like, he isn't just standing by and letting Germany take over, like, he's actually doing something and, like, a very dangerous role, too. I'm like, you go, dad. You go, Julian. (laughs) <laughs> oh, yeah, he really turns there for me in terms of what I think about him. So, and he, that's not, oh, that would be so hard to literally go to that office every day and work under them, but be, he'll be shot on the spot if something, if he gets caught. Like, yeah, 100%. no second ask. 100%. Chapter 19. So, this chapter begins with a warning that's been posted in October of 1941. It says that any male who helps downed enemy pilots will be, quote, shot on the spot. And if you're a woman, you'll be sent to a concentration camp in Germany. But Isabel's plan is in motion. She is now Juliet Gervais, codename the Nightingale. And she's ready to sneak men out of France. Like I hate that anyone had to do this, but like, good for you, girl. Yeah, such a badass. Oh my gosh, (laughs) it's it's incredible. She is set to board a train to San Jandalus. I don't know. (laughs) With four airmen who now all have false papers, thanks to her dad, and the. So I put it in my own quotes. The only heavy air quotes on that uncertainty with this plan is actually getting to her friend that lives near the mountains because they haven't been able to make contact and I can't remember how it's phrased in the book but it does say something along those lines where they're like the only flaw here I was like the, the only flaw? I mean, yeah <laughs> like I'm not saying there are a lot of flaws in your plan but there's definitely a lot of things that could go wrong yes and a lot of risk and Definitely death that would be associated if something went wrong. <laughs> yeah. Keep you, yeah. So the men are not supposed to speak with anyone and they even carry signs that say they're, they're deaf and just waiting to be picked up. And they have this plan where if anyone tries to talk to them, they're sort of going to play dumb. Um, Isabel also like will keep an eye on things and even distract some German soldiers at one point who kind of like eye one of the guys. She's like, oh my gosh, and starts flirting with them. And so they do reach the cottage of Madame Babino. She introduces herself as Juliet, sent by Julianne Rosignol. And from there, though, like she has to be honest about what they're doing and why she's there. So she does tell this lady that she has four pilots waiting for her nearby and that she wants to take them to the British consulate in Spain. 
a man named Eduardo comes in and initially kind of tests her and she's like, Hey, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, I'm just lost looking for directions. No big deal. And they're like, well played girl. You know yeah. what you're doing. And so he's like, heck yeah, you're fine. I'll take you to Spain. No worries. Let's do it. <laughs> and so late that night, um, Madame Babino talks with Isabel who tells her to message her father if they don't make it and to say, quote, the nightingale didn't fly. Which was like, I can't even imagine. It's so sad just to even have to think about that. Oh, my goodness. So the group prepares to head out hiking in darkness to stay hidden and completely silent. But it's freezing. It's raining. Incredibly strenuous. And they push on until they reach a shack that Eduardo says they'll stay in temporarily. So they sleep there during the day and then begin hiking again in the late afternoon through snow and intense hunger. Um, One of the guys actually falls at one point and Isabel like rushes to help him to get up, telling him to push on and to really think of his wife back home that he needs to get to. When the sun rises again, they shelter in a cave and she talks with McLeish who thanks her for saving him, even though they haven't really like made it out just yet. Yeah, that's okay. Um, when that that almost makes me think that he's probably thinking they're not going to, and I, it's like I've got to say something now. Because I do I wonder that. I mean, I'm sure. Like, I feel like the biggest thing this book has really made me realize is like just how cold everyone is all the time like either at Vienne's house or like hiking through this mountain like I I mean and the way that it's described where it's like freezing rain and they're just wearing like blankets as like cloaks basically I mean I can only imagine so I'm sure to an extent he's probably like we're just gonna freeze to death out here or die, die of starvation so thanks for trying like <laughs> we'll die up here in the mountains <laughs> how many people would have even given it a shot so right <laughs> I mean, I think he's genuine. Oh, I think he's thanks. Thanks for you being the one to save me and like not letting me get captured by the Germans or like your dad. But yeah, I definitely think he's probably like, will we really make it? I don't know. (laughs) Thanks in advance. Yes. (laughs) When they do make it over the mountain, though, they have to hide from patrols and they do need to get over a river. So they end up having to cross a bridge one by one and they have they do it in like 60 second increments. Um, and it's like a rope bridge like that just (laughs) I when this part came I was like you've got to be kidding me not like they just made it over a mountain a tough mountain nonetheless and now like can you imagine me like I this is what I have to do like that wasn't enough right oh my goodness well and I think like before they departed on their journey too I and I can't remember if it was Isabel or maybe like McLeish or one of the other pilots were like commenting on being like physically fit like hey you know I'm I'm prepared for this but I feel like you can be as physically fit as you want but if you're starving you've gone through freezing rain now you have to cross over like a torrential river that's just rushing from all of the snow and rain that's been falling this whole time I mean, how physically fit are you that you also have to carry your own supplies? You have shoes that don't fit. Like, it's one thing to be bleeding. Right. Like, it's, and it's so cold that if you cry, your tears freeze to your face and your eyelashes. It's, 
So like you're fit under perfect conditions, right. but now you've gone through all of this shit and you're still, I mean, kudos to them. They're still trekking. They want to make it, they've got to get there. But I'm like, there's no way that you can tell me you were mentally and physically prepared for this journey. No. Well, and most people, if you go out to hike today and you're going to hike the Pyrenees mountains, like you're prepping for that ahead of time. No amount of push-ups that these guys did in hiding in Paris was going to prepare them to hike over this mountain. Right. And again, like I guarantee, I mean, Isabel for sure, but I guarantee these men probably after they've been bombed down, like there's no way they're eating anything. Like they're just, or like they're trying to find scraps. I mean, they've been in hiding this whole time. So it's not like you have all of this weight and energy that you are, you know, that you would have had, had you not been caught or, you know, been bombed down. (laughs) But they do make it and they reach a woman who's going to help them get the rest of the way to the consulate. Eduardo, before he leaves, he tells Isabel that he'll continue to help her as long as she brings more pilots, but that it's certainly not going to get any easier. And she's kind of like, oh, I mean, that wasn't easy. And he goes, yeah, but they didn't expect us this time. Like, it's going to get harder because people will be looking. Right. And so they do reach the consulate. And of course, the people there are shocked to hear that anyone, let alone a woman, because it is what it is, brought men over the mountains. And she's like, yep, and I'm going to do it some more, but I need some money to help. But I love that, like, McLeish, like, all of the dudes are like, yo, call my contact. He'll give you money. He knows what's up. Like, the fa- like they're all chiming in, like, oh, my gosh, yes, give this girl all the money. We've made it. We're alive. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. I love it under the circumstances. Yes. <laughs> okay, chapter 20. So last chapter for part two. Isabel is on her way back to Paris, having met with an MI9 agent to set like a formal route and establish herself as the main contact, Nightingale. She's got money so that she can pay for food, clothes, and also like setting up safe houses to pay the people that have those properties. She also heads to her new apartment because like she is no longer Isabel. She's Juliet Gervais, so she can't go live back with her dad. She has to assume this new identity, but again, senses that someone is watching her. She softly kind of calls out to Gaetan and knows that he's been following her, but he never comes out of the darkness. So it seems like he's checking in on her and wanting to make sure she got back safe. It's now February 1942 in Caribou, another incredibly harsh winter. They are wearing all of the clothing that they own, and Vian is giving Sophie all the food that she can get. It sucks to say, but without Beck there, like, they don't have much for food, and they don't really have a fire to keep going um, like they did when he was there. And I think it was even described that, like, they've been, you know, chopping off pieces of furniture, like, cutting things down to just have stuff to burn whenever they can, but it's not often. (laughs) No. Vianne goes to the trapdoor in the barn to get pearls from her mother's jewelry box. Um, She's been selling all sorts of items out of there to try to get food for Sophie. And these are all, like, the sentimental things, too, that she had wanted to hand down to Sophie or keep. And they're treasured items that she's selling just to be able to feed Sophie. 
One morning, Sophie and Vianne walk to church, but Vianne is in a complete daze from the cold and how malnourished she is. On their way home, Vianne can see that Beck has returned, but she collapses before she even makes it inside. Beck rushes to get her and carries her in. He tells Sophie to go get Rachel as well. And when she gets there, Beck tells her that he's watched Vianne give all of the food to Sophie. So after she rests, Vianne admits that without him, there just wasn't enough food. And now, of course, like he's returned. So he's brought some and helps her eat. I don't know. Like, again, I'm super conflicted because he's like genuinely concerned about her or seems that way. Right. And I mean, makes the comment about like what Sophie's supposed to do if you die. Like you have to live. You have to keep going. It doesn't seem malicious, but it's he's just hard to trust. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> By 1942, America has joined the world, the war, and Isabel is meeting another couple of pilots to take across the Pyrenees. One is an American from Oregon who doesn't, I don't even know if it's relevant, but it just kind of seems kind of odd that out of all the states, there's this American from Oregon who doesn't really seem to grasp exactly what they're about to do. He keeps like calling the mountains hills. She's like, yeah. Uh, no, dude. I mean, Oregon has mountains. So like, I'm not, I feel like I don't understand why he doesn't just, especially bend. Like that's right outside. Like I've been to bend. There's definitely some big ass mountains over there. (laughs) Well, this pilot maybe wasn't much of a hiker. I don't know. Could be, could be. (laughs) Uh, but so in May, a couple months later, tensions are definitely even worse, which is kind of hard to believe, but like across the country, again, with collaborators and people being arrested for the tiniest of things. Sarah rushes to VM one day and says something is wrong with Rachel. And when they get to their house, Rachel is sitting there with a drink and a cigarette in a complete daze. She tells and shows Vian the yellow cloth stars that they are now supposed to wear or they'll be arrested if they don't. Vienna thinks that they, that they, as in Rachel and her kids, should try to escape, but it's just really not possible as a Jewish person to be able to do that. And they can't get the travel passes. It'd be really dangerous. They'd probably be killed if they were caught. And when Sarah and Sophie come out, Rachel tells Sarah that they, being her family, now have to wear the stars on their clothes. And she tells her daughter they have to be proud of being a Jew. Sophie says, hey, I'll wear one too. And Rachel tells her, quote, this is one thing you and your best friend can't do together, end quote. This just makes me so sad because, I mean, I feel like we all kind of probably can guess where this is about to take us. And it just really sucks knowing that, like, Sophie's best friend and Vienne's best friend are probably maybe not going to make it through the rest of the book with us so it's just a really sad reality that has to be faced it's really sad man on a lighter note what a note to end on (laughs) on a lighter note let's cast this thing even though it's been technically cast um these are our picks yes 
Yeah, I feel like should we mention, so I mean, maybe other people, if anyone listens to us, knows this, but this was originally supposed to be produced in 2021 as a movie. And I was telling Brie, like, my copy of the book even says, like, soon to be a major motion picture, like, coming in, hot, hot, hot. And then I, I think it was partially because of COVID and I'm sure other difficulties with everything that was going on in 2020, but it just kind of got put on hold indefinitely, it seems. I mean, there's been no further discussion of release dates or anything coming out. So originally, I, we should say, the original cast picks, because we're just casting for Isabel and Vienne, um, they, it was originally going to be the Fanning sisters. So Dakota and why am I forgetting her name right oh. now? L, thank you. I'm like Elizabeth. No, L, Dakota, and L Fanning were going to play. Um, L playing Isabel, Dakota playing Vienne. But Brie and I were both like, this just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like those might be the right characters. So let us offer you our picks. <laughs> Brie, right. kick us off. You want me to go? <laughs> yeah. Okay. <clears throat> So let me go ahead and butcher some more names for you. Uh, my pick for Isabel was Camille Raza. Raza? I don't know. She's French. Um, she's actually in Emily in Paris. Oh. So I picked her. I don't know. She just kind of has this, like, spunkiness about her. I also like that she's actually French and so I think she would be a great pick for Isabel and then for Via I said Jamima West mm, mm-hmm. um she is from the Mortal Instrument City of Bones which was like a movie I don't even know what she played it who she played in it but it um, was a movie from a while ago which is also based on a book um and like Lily Collins was in the movie. I think she played the main girl and there's a whole other series called shadow hunters, which is based off of the same series. Mm-hmm. Um, but this Jemima, Jemima, I think it's Jemima. I don't know. She's also an in Indian summers, which is a British series that I've never heard of. And the bourgeois. Ooh, okay. Um, okay. So I picked, I told Brie this when we talked what, last week, a couple days ago, whatever, that I, like, in my head, I've basically been picturing the cast of Inglorious Bastards this whole time. <laughs> um, just, like, because I feel like they just play, I mean, it's also, like, a World War II movie, and granted, like, yes, it's a little bit, you know, it's Quentin Tarantino, so it's kind of satire, like, it's funny, but it's terrible, but it's very bloody. So, um, that's, like, mentally who I've been picturing the whole time, but I picked for Isabel... So I kind of did, like, if you wanted to go a little bit younger, maybe more, like, true to the book in terms of age, I chose Emma Mackey, um, who is, she plays Maeve in Sex Education. Um, She's also from France, even though she's in a British series. Um, And she has, you know, a British accent and everything. But I thought, you know, maybe she could pull off, go back to her French, French roots. Or... Um, sticking to the Inglorious Bastards pick, um, and also as like an older look for Isabel, I said Melanie Laurent, Laurent, Laurent. I almost who, picked her. 
who is in Inglorious Bastards. I can't remember the title of her, the name of her character in the show, but um, she plays a, a really great role of a basically German spy. So it worked out perfectly. <laughs> um, and then for Vienne, this one was a little bit harder for me, but I kind of settled on for a younger actress pick of Anya Taylor-Joy. Um, again, she's another like British actress, but I do feel like she's played a lot of period pieces. And is she? I thought she was. Or maybe she's Australian. Oh, gosh. Maybe I'm misspeaking. Quick Google. <laughs> oh, she is. Okay. Yes. I didn't know that. Okay. Oh, well, it says citizenship UK and United States. Well, according to Wikipedia. I thought she had an accent. Uh, Maybe I'm making that up. She was born in Miami, Florida. Well, okay. So oh. maybe she's American. But whatever. She's played. She's in The Queen's Gambit. She's in the um, Split movie, which is, like, kind of creepy if anyone's ever seen that one. Seen it. Um, so I thought for, like, a younger VN actress, maybe someone more, again, true to kind of the age in the book, she would be a good one. And then for an older actress... Grant, like I say older, she, these people are not old by any means, but for an older visual pick, if you will, I said Marianne, Marion Colliard, is how I'm going to say it, Colliard? Nailed it. <laughs> um, who is in, gosh, she's in a lot of stuff. Um, the Dark Knight, she's in one of those movies. She's in um, uh, Inception. She's in so many, so many movies. I feel like she's just like a very familiar, like true French actress as well. Like have has a pretty heavy accent, I would say, in movies too. So if you wanted a, if you wanted anyone from France, <laughs> maybe she's the one. <laughs> and those are our picks for a movie that's supposedly already been made, and we will maybe never know. Nope, we might not. But hey, could be a narratives in the news if it ever comes back to the production lines again. <laughs> Definitely a narratives in the news if it does. And I, I mean, despite the fact that I'm not totally on board with the casting for it, I would still be very excited to see that. Oh, so. yes, definitely would love to see it. Would also be very interested. I know we didn't cast them, but I would love to see who the male picks are. I'm sure we can look that up, but it would just be fun to see how they uh, play out in the film, just because I feel like the men aren't necessarily at the forefront of this book, but they still have to be pretty strong characters in order to like be the behind the scenes kind of spies that they are. I mean, so. well, like Gaetan and Captain Beck, for sure, and others are, have really important roles in yes. the storyline, so... Yeah, it would be interesting to see who was picked for those. For sure. All right. Next week, we're doing part three of this, which will be chapters 21 through 31. And I will oh. probably read all of that tonight because I've been very excitedly awaiting the moment that I can start reading it again. <laughs> Me too. Okay. Until then, cheers. Cheers.